Physics World. In Ridley Scott's latest sci-fi blockbuster, The Martian, our neighbouring planet is a dusty, inhospitable world. The survival of the lead character, played by Matt Damon, is on a knife edge when his crew abandon him for dead after a vicious Martian storm. With no existing life on this red wasteland, Damon's character has to grow some crops within an artificial habitat. But is Scott's film an accurate depiction of the Martian environment? What about if there is life on Mars? What might it look like? And could an upcoming mission of the European Space Agency finally lead to some answers on that eternal question of whether we're alone in the universe? To tackle these deep questions, I recently caught up with Lewis Dartnell, an astrobiologist based at the University of Leicester in the UK. He's involved in designing an instrument for that upcoming mission to Mars. So I kicked things off by asking Lewis what he thought of The Martian. I loved it. I, I liked the book. The book um, was really interesting. It set up this, this, this great uh, adventure story with kind of science providing the, the solutions to, to all the challenges. Um, and the film was absolutely gorgeous. It has some incredible visuals of, of the Martian landscape and um, Matt Damon's character kind of trudging across it, trying to, trying to stay alive. How's the science in that? I mean, is it, is it sort of good, solid science or is it a bit of Hollywood licence going on? No, it is, it is all good. And, and in fact, the, pretty much the only things you can criticise the film for in terms of science fails are there's a couple of scenes where they set up the uh, catastrophe at the beginning of the film and there's this great big uh, windstorm, sandstorm, that starts threatening the entire mission and the rest of his uh, team launch back to Earth thinking that he's already been killed. And although Mars does have these enormous dust storms, sometimes the entire planet, the entire planet is smothered by the same global dust storm. Because the atmosphere on Mars is so thin, it's not like it would kind of knock you over or risk collapsing the habitat or knocking you over the rocket. But to be fair, for a science fiction cinema film, I don't think you can really complain that it, you know, it, it takes liberties every now and then with the kind of dangers or the kind of drama of the whole situation. But all of the things he achieves to keep himself alive are absolutely scientifically plausible. They've done an enormous amount of research and, and kind of fact-checking mm. to get it all right. Lewis's own research is concerned with examining the microorganisms that can survive in some of the most extreme conditions here on Earth. By studying the physiology and survival tactics of these so-called extremophiles, astrobiologists like Lewis hope to get an understanding of the type of life that could survive in a place like the Martian surface and where to look for these hardy little creatures on alien worlds. Yeah, so I got into astrobiology from the biology end. Although, as I was saying, I know lots of friends in astrobiology who are physicists or geologists or planetary scientists. And my own direct research is on this incredible category of life forms on Earth called the extremophiles. These are forms of life living in the most hostile, uh, inhospitable, extreme environments on our own world. So from uh, puddles and, and lakes of boiling hot acidic water to the very cold, salty water inside solar icebergs to very alkaline water or very radiation-intense environments. And there's different organisms that we now find thriving in all these very hostile uh, environments on Earth. And these extremophiles, when you consider them all together, they teach us about the survival envelope of life on Earth. What, what is the maximum range of conditions that biology can evolve to tolerate, to, to withstand? And therefore, where are the sensible places to look for life on other planets? Where, where are those conditions that we now know to be habitable? So I focus on radiation resistance, primarily. So a lot of my field work, a lot of the samples I work with, have come from Mars-like places on Earth, 
um, like the Atacama Desert in Chile, where I was out earlier this year, or the dry valleys in Antarctica, which are very, very cold, very, very dry, and we find a lot of radiation-resistant organisms in these kind of places as well. Oh, is that really fascinating creatures? I mean, did you have a, a favourite? <laughs> what, what do you think is particularly uh, hardcore? It's so if, if I were to pick my, my favourite, my survival superhero microorganism, <laughs> uh, it would be a tiny little bug called Dinococcus radiodurans, which is like Greek and Latin for radiation-resisting fearsome balls, which, <laughs> which just basically describes what it does. This, this bacterium, Dinococcus, can withstand radiation dose thousands of times higher what would kill you or I or any of your listeners. Um, and it's incredibly good at detecting when its DNA has been damaged by that radiation, pauses whatever it's doing at, you know, at that time of day, uh, takes a bit of a pause, and then pieces together its genome, pieces together its DNA like a jigsaw puzzle, and then just gets on with, with the rest of its life. It's, it's got incredibly efficient DNA repair mechanisms. So I'm working with this with this bacterium, with Dinococcus in the labs, uh, growing it up to be nice and healthy in these great big dense populations in uh, culture flasks on my desk, getting them nice and healthy, and then zapping them high doses of gamma rays to try to get them to die again. Because then you can understand what their radiation resistance is like, what kind of conditions they can survive, what trace of that life stays behind even after it's been killed, what fragments of the cell or of those distinctive biological molecules stick around that you could then detect with a robotic probe to find these biosignatures, to find signs of life on Mars. So if, it, if, if a creature like that did survive on Mars, what, you know, what is our best hope of, of actually finding them? Is there a mission out there at the moment or is there a planned mission that you know, think really, you know, really could pin them down? Well, there's a very exciting mission coming up that will be, is being built and will be launched by ESA, by the European Space Agency. So this isn't NASA, this is us Brits working with the Spanish and the French and the Dutch and the Germans and Italians, everyone across Europe, working together to build this probe called ExoMars, which will launch in the year 2018 specifically to look for signs of life. It is going to have life detection equipment on board and the instrument that I'm working on is called Raman spectroscopy and it, it uses a laser to not only tell you about the mineralogy, the kind of rock that you're zapping your laser at, but any kind of organic molecules or, or potential signs of life inside that rock. So this, this instrument, this, this Raman instrument, is incredibly sensitive and versatile. We use it on Earth for everything from detecting forgeries and art masterpieces to explosives in the airport or uh, fake drugs or drug doping. And it's incredibly uh, versatile in all those different examples. But for the first time ever with ExoMars, with this rover, we're going to try Raman on another world and then see if we can detect signs of life using this instrument. So have you chosen a landing site yet for that? Has that been selected? It's, it's not down to me. It's a bit like pin a nail on the donkey, I suppose. Close your eyes and, and stick a pin into the map. Um, but ESA is taking a lot of time to make that decision. And friends of mine in, in the community are involved in those uh, meetings and community discussions. And it's, it's, it's almost like everyone picks their own favourite site, which they think for good scientific reasons they can justify is the best site to go to for, for these scientific questions. And they basically argue with each other for <laughs> several meetings to try to convince everyone else that there's the best site for these reasons compared to all the others. It's a, it's a real kind of curious competitive process, <laughs> picking which spot on Mars you're going to land on. So, I mean, Mars has been in the news recently, hasn't it? Because mm. there's um, is it the clearest evidence yet that liquid water could survive on Mars at the moment. Yeah. It does exist. So, I mean, what are the implications of that? And could that be a potential landing site? Yeah, this, I mean, it, it is an exciting 
discovery. But to be honest, it's, it's kind of a step on the journey we've been travelling down for, for quite a few years now. And I suspect people get a bit confused when they read another newspaper headline saying waterfowl on Mars. Because mm-hmm. we, found, we found lots, we found lots of ice. Uh, on the polar ice caps today, we see lots of signs of ancient water on Mars. We see uh, ancient channels and river valleys and deltas and uh, dried up lakes. Um, and the big question has always been, how much of that water is liquid on the surface of Mars still today? And what they discovered very recently are these RSL, which is a really boring acronym for Recurring Slope Lineae, which basically means dark lines on the side of craters or other slopes which are seasonal, that they seem to appear as summer approaches on Mars. Mm. And the implication was that maybe something is thawing as, as the summer warms up the ground and then trickling, flowing down these slopes. And that was a hypothesis. And we've now got very convincing evidence that is in fact the case. We've seen lots of salt being deposited, deposited in, these, in these dark streaks on Mars. Now this is exciting because, as we're just talking about, the, the extremophiles on Earth, and particularly the halophiles, that can survive very, very high salt concentrations, might be able to survive in those trickles of liquid water on Mars. The hope is that with ExoMars and NASA's next mission, 20, uh, NASA 2020, so Mars 2020, um, we'll be able to find signs of, of perhaps more habitable liquid water in, in ancient Mars, and maybe signs of life that, that's been left behind and persisted until today. Mm. I mean, Mars today I mean, sounds like a really icy and hospitable place, but it wasn't always quite that bad, was it? So really, in its history, was it slightly wetter and perhaps slightly warmer? And do you think the best hope of you know, finding life on Mars is potentially ancient life that's now been extinct? Or? Yeah, that's it. There's a lot of good evidence that, that primordial Mars, ancient Mars, was, was much warmer and wetter. But today it's, it's basically a freeze-dried desert. It's more extreme than any place on Earth. It's a very nasty place to try to eke out a living. But if we start digging underground, and very excitingly what uh, the ExoMars probe will have is a two-metre-long drill. If we get underground on Mars, we might find stuff that's been preserved, even in that very nasty environment, or if we start digging even deeper, and we're starting to talk on a decade to the future, we might find life that's underground where it's still warm and still liquid, and it's, it's thriving in the kind of subsurface biosphere, even today. So I, mean, I suppose the other, the other sort of side of the coin with these missions is, you know, eventually the idea is that we perhaps send people there. Um, you know, when that does happen, or if it does happen, I mean, what advantage could that have over robotic missions? What could what could people get from the from the surface of Mars to improve our scientific understanding that we couldn't do with robots? It's probably fair to say that a, that a team of astronauts could do more before breakfast on Mars than all the robots we sent so far could do in their you know several years of, of mission because a human is so much more capable and we've we've got this brain in our heads which is very good at spotting things that don't fit, curious things, things that stand out from the landscape, the interesting stuff you'd want to go over and have a, have a closer look at and hit with a rock hammer and then kind of look for signs of life on the inside. But on the other side of the argument, oh, humans are quite fragile, quite easy to kill. And so to, to land humans safely on Mars and keep them alive is going to take so much infrastructure and technology, which would be very expensive. So you could send a vast number of robotic probes to explore different places on Mars than it would take to land just one human mission and explore one location. And the other problem with sending humans to Mars is that we're inherently mucky things. We're literally dripping with bacteria all of the time. And that life would start leaking out of the kind of habitat and through the airlock and potentially contaminate the Martian surface. So if you're looking for signs of bacteria on Mars, 
the last thing you want to do is take terrestrial bacteria as contamination and perhaps end up finding that and not being able to tell the difference between your own dirty fingerprints and, and, and Martian life. So there's really good arguments on, on both sides of, of, of the coin. And to be honest, I don't really know where I'd come down. Mm. Oh, do, you, do you think it will happen at some point? Oh, I mean, it will happen inevitably. And, and the kind of the child in me, the person that grew up on kind of sci-fi on TV, I'd love for it to happen sooner or later. I'd love in the next 15, 20 years mm. for human missions to be landing on Mars and perhaps building habitats and colonies. But I say there's, there's that concern nagging at the back of my mind that if you're doing astrobiology and looking for bacteria, you've got to be really careful to, to not contaminate the planet. Well, do you think, you know, if, if you could be guaranteed a safe journey, would, would you go if it was a one-way ticket? <laughs> <laughs> the honest answer is, is no, certainly not. Because spaceflight, I, I don't think, is, is particularly comfortable. You, it's quite claustrophobic, and you're living in you know, a, a tiny little airtight compartment for, for months on end, and when you go up to the International Space Station, you're, you're close to Earth, you've got lots to look at, you can have conversations with your loved ones and your, and your family. When you go to Mars, it's so far away, it takes so long to get there, and there's a 20-minute time delay in any conversations. You'll, if you go to live on Mars, you will never be able to have a phone conversation with anyone you've ever met on Earth ever again. You, you'd, you'd spend the rest of your life with your, with your friends by, by email alone. Um, and I, I, just don't fancy that, to be honest. It, there, it takes... there, there seems to be a lot of people, though, who, you know, who would. I mean, why, why do you think there is this... There's always been this real fascination well, I think with just some people are more adventurous than me, <laughs> is the answer. I think it, it does take a particular kind of personality to, mm. to be an explorer or an adventurer mm. or an astronaut. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, you know, whether or not life does exist on Mars, perhaps it will turn out it, didn't, it never did exist. Do you think, sort of looking out of the wider cosmos, I mean, how, how prevalent do you think life is, um, in, in your personal opinion? <laughs> so, in, in a sense, I've kind of already bet my career on the fact that life is common out in, in the solar system or the, or the galaxy as a whole, because that's what I've chosen to, to study, that's the research field that I've chosen. And it, it's kind of hard to say with any degree of certainty, because we only have a single example, and that's life here on Earth. And the reason that finding life on Mars would be so important is if we, if we find two planets in the same solar system, neighbouring planets, have both had an independent genesis of life. So if we can prove that Martian life is different from Earth life, we'd know that the probability of life arising therefore is very high. There's two examples in the same solar system. So finding life on Mars is, is so much more important than finding just one other example. It means that the probability of life is, is probably quite high and therefore the galaxy could be teeming with life. It could be that any damp rock orbiting a sun out there in our galaxy could be teeming with microbial life. Scary thought. <laughs> or, or, or an optimistic <laughs> thought. So that was the astrobiologist Lewis Darknell talking recently in London ahead of a public lecture he gave about the possibilities of life beyond the Earth. There's some video highlights from that event, along with reaction from the audience. Take a look at physicsworld.com. On that site, you'll also find details of how to access the November issue of our magazine. It's a special issue about extremes in physics, including a feature about how physicists are helping to study these extremophiles here on Earth. That article includes more about Lewis's favourite of these little critters, Dinococcus radiogerans. So that's all from us today. Join us for our next podcast in December, when we'll be revealing what we've chosen for our popular physics book of the year. Until then, goodbye. Physics World. <laughs>